This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Recollections Radio. Monday morning tea time is now all about sharing memories with you, old and new, of life in Dunedin. Bringing you stories, interviews and music from times past and inviting you to share your memories with us. Presented by Jill Bowie and Kay Mercer, the team behind Dunedin Public Library's Scattered Seeds Archive. Thanks to generous funding by the New Zealand Library's Partnership Project. Recollections Radio, Monday mornings at 11 on 105.4 FM and 1575 AM. Hello everyone and welcome to Recollections Radio on this Anzac Day. I'm Kay Mercer and I'm presenting the show alone today as my colleague Jill is away working on an exhibition for Dunedin Public Libraries. I thought I'd start the show today uh, with this article that I read in the ODT a couple of weeks ago. It, it reminded me that we have a lot of rivalry with Australia, economic and sporting and political even, But when it comes to remembering those who lost their lives during the Anzac campaign, I think that is a time when we most realise how close we are as countries, as nations. Um, And this article was particularly poignant to underline that relationship. The story goes, an Australian Veterans Association is honouring the first recorded New Zealander to die at Gallipoli, an Otago soldier who bridged the gap between the Anzac countries. Private Wilfred Knight was born at Waipori in 1890. He moved to New South Wales aged 21 and then enlisted in August 1914. His battalion embarked two months later and he was among the second and third waves of landings at Anzac Cove on April 25, 1915. The Juni Returned and Services League of Australia, the RSL over there, President uh, Greg Zakharov said Private Knight was among the first deaths in the attack and was the first New Zealander to be recorded as such. Before the war, he had moved to Juni to work as a locomotive fireman and he became an Australian citizen. As part of its Anzac Day service, the Juni RSL was producing a nine-page booklet about Private Knight because the group wanted to honour the man and let his family know he was still being thought about in Juni, which I think is just... Wonderful. Members of the Knight family are still in Otago today. In fact, he's got a cousin in Roxburgh Miller's flat. So, yeah, I think that would be heartening for them to know that he is still thought of and still remembered after all these years. And I thought I would start today's programme with some music for all of those who have suffered in war and continue to suffer to this day in wars around the world. This is We'll Meet Again, but it's a new version. It's not the original. It's This one is sung by Johnny Cash. We'll meet again Don't know where Don't know when But I know we'll meet again Some sunny day Keep smiling through Just like you always do Till the blue skies drive The dark clouds far away And will you please say hello To the folks that I know Tell them that I won't be long And they'll be happy to know That as you saw me go I was 
singing this song We'll meet again Don't know where Don't know when But I know we'll meet again Some sunny day Yeah, we'll meet again I don't know where And I don't know when But I do know That we'll meet again Some sunny day So honey Keep on smiling through Just like you always do Till the blue skies Drive the dark clouds Far away And would you please say hello To all the folks that I know And tell them I won't be long They'll be happy to know That as you saw me go I was singing this song We'll meet again Johnny Cash there with We'll Meet Again, a lovely version of that song. Let's have a change of mood now. Tomorrow is Archibald Dunningham's birthday, or it would have been. Visitors to the library, City Library, may have wondered how the Dunningham suite on the fourth floor got its name. Well, all will be revealed now as we listen to part one of Mary Ronnie's interview. Back in 2020, my colleague Jill interviewed Mary Ronnie QSO, who was the former city and the national librarian. And gives, she gives an account of Mr Archibald Dunningham, the man she worked for, the man who did so much for the city during almost 30 years of service as the Dunedin City Librarian, laying a vital foundation that still resonates to this very day. So here's part one of that interview. Archie Dunningham was appointed the City Librarian in Dunedin in 1933 at the age of 26. When did you first encounter Archie Dunningham? I encountered him in 1942. When I had just started in the sixth form at Tiger Girls High School, I had done my trick the year before. I was 15 and I was walking past the front door of the library when one of my friends who was working here, because she was too young to become a kindergarten teacher and she had my trick as well, she said, why don't you work after school? So the mate I was with, who eventually became a very good doctor, um, decided that we'd go and ask this would be a bit of fun. <laughs> well, Mr Dunning wasn't there, it was Miss Bryant that was interviewed us, so she took us on and we went down after school. And at that stage I had a free period at the end of the school year, the day, so it was all right, but then that went and I've ended up by working from half past three until half past six every afternoon. Well, the following Monday, Mr Dunningham came back from holiday and he invited Nolan and me down to his office and of course we were addressed as Miss Ronnie and Miss Carrington. And of course we were so fascinated by this at the age of 15, this really very polished gentleman calling us Miss Ronnie. And <laughs> the first time we'd ever been called this. And what he was to tell us was that they didn't have the money to keep us on. So 
could we stay for the three weeks until the, all the staff came back from holidays and um, after that it was solid that we'd have to go. So that was that. So Nolly in the meantime of course was busy getting detentions because she was not doing something else and having <laughs> violin lessons after school and all sorts of things which I didn't have. So of course she faded out. She just wasn't there. And at the second week, Miss Bryant came to me and said, would I like to stay on? So I said, yes, please. Yeah. So I stayed on for 39 years. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my first encounter with Mr. Dunningham. But quite soon afterwards, at that stage, of course, I had no idea what I wanted to do. But I, you know, I knew I didn't want to be a school teacher because half my family were school teachers and my brother and I were fed up with hearing them talk <laughs> about schools endlessly. So we weren't going to be school teachers. I was never going to teach. Ha, ha, ha. So I sort of thought, what I want to do is be an engineer. Mr. Dunningham mm. somehow knew this. How he found out? <laughs> well, I never knew how Mr. Dunningham found out things. We thought he listened on the telephone, probably. Or <laughs> he did know. And I was on the issue desk, which was the old monkey box, we called it. And there were two seats in it. And it was late in the afternoon, and I was surrounded by cards that I was sorting. And this must have been a, maybe March or April. I'd been there about three or four weeks. And he sat beside me and said, I believe you would like to be an engineer. And I looked at him and said, how did you know that? <laughs> but he didn't answer. He never did answer if you asked him that sort of question. So I said, well, yes, I would, but there's not much point to it because I've just checked and women can't go into the practical side of it. They can only do the theory. That was from Canterbury. And I said, I'm not interested. So he said, well, we had a little chat about it, and that was that. That came up again when Miss O'Keefe retired in 1946, by which time I was working full-time. I realised that I went to university in 1943, did French 1, Latin 1, went back to do stage 2 of both subjects in 1944, I guess it was, and I was hating it. It was too much working half time. I was still working mm. 20 hours a week, and it was it was really difficult, and I was, dis and I was only 16 by then. I was far too young for the whole thing. So I applied for this job that came up, and it was the first one since the war began. That was 1944. So I got the job, and I spent a great deal of the time shel um, shelving for Ms O'Keefe mm. before she retired. Um, and that department sort of fascinated me. But it also annoyed me because the shelves were jammed full. There were 1901 encyclopedias of technology, and at a time, when absolutely everything was coming out about plastics and jet engines and, you know, wartime discoveries that had been secret, nuclear power, dozens of books on this sort of thing. And he was the stuff. Anyway, when Mr. Keefe retired in 1946, Mr. Dunningham wanted a man and he wanted a scientist. But with the pay that they offered, <laughs> his chances were next. Absolute <laughs> nil. It was just... So he said to me one day when I was down doing periodicals or something, you wouldn't like to take the room over for the rest of this year? So I said, yes, I would. So I did. And I was, well, I really liked, you see, was being out in public with the public. I liked, that's what I liked doing. 
And so I went, I was standing in front of the desk looking at the place and he came along and said, you don't like it, do you? And I said, no, I just don't like the look of it, but it needs fixing, Mr Dunningham. There's far too many books on the shelf. And he said, go and get a trolley. I'll get a couple of stools. <laughs> I went and got the trolley and we sat on those stools for an hour every day for a month and cleared the shelves. And all the time he talked about why you bought particular books. It was the best piece of library education I ever had. Nothing we had at any library school I've ever been at. I tried to do it in Monash and the kids loved it mm. because I just did it the same way as Archie had done in 1946. And, you know, I can remember him still saying, it's weems on air navigation, Miss Ronnie. That's the only thing to have. <laughs> I think it was air navigation. It might have been gliding. But, you know, we went through the whole place and we just dumped into the trolley all the things that were out of date so that the shelves had space. Mm. And then, of course, he began to want it all covered with nice cover covers and everything else. He was very good at the public side of it. So that, you know... And you did choose your own books, you see. They mm. just circulated the journals, and um, there was just such a lot coming out. It was a very exciting room to be in. And I think I knew every engineer in this city. I can remember going down in the works truck to Cadbury's to see what they needed. Because we had engineering index and we had the industrial arts index. Mm. Now, of course, they've got everything online. But somebody gave us engineering index. And it was very difficult to use after the Americans because they're very good at indexing. The Americans, you know, their indexes are easy to use. The Wilson Company indexes are very easy to use. Oh, the index was a faction and it wasn't so easy, but boy, was it good. <laughs> it was just terrific. So I really had a great time in that department. So I had it for about five years. But at the end of that first year, I can remember going to see Miss Fash and saying, well, what about this job? And she said, what do you mean, Mary? And I said, well, Mr Dunningham said I could have this job for the, until the end of the year. And we're now into December. And she looked at me and she said, oh, go away. He's forgotten that. <laughs> I discovered when I was doing the research for the book that he had got my appointment confirmed in the June of that year. <laughs> Didn't tell me. That was it. <laughs> I was, it was a little fait accompli. That was that. I, a month after I took over, he just decided, oh, I better have it. And he wrote and made the appointment official. But I didn't know that. <laughs> and here was me wondering all year, was, was I between this and I wasn't going to have it next oh. year? Keeping you on, on your toes. Yeah. <laughs> so that was my early experience with Archie. Because what was he like as a person? Because it seems like he obviously could motivate people and inspire people to to work hard. And He was someone, I think, that disconcerted a lot of people. He was quite formal in lots of ways. You were never Christian names. You were never Nobody called each other by Christian names except your contemporaries. Miss um, Fash was Miss Fash until she was in London, long retired, before she wrote to me and said, you'd better call me Aidan. I, mean, I thought, how can I do that? Um, <clears throat> he was he was always extremely polished he'd spent a lot of time in the parliamentary library mm. that was his early experience with um, Alistair Macintosh of course that, that relationship remained forever and fascinated me from the end of my life probably. I mean because Alistair Macintosh became my chief of, of the board at, at the National Library <clears throat> so that with the link the link was there all the time but I think a lot of people were quite 
um, disconcerted by him because he was much more formal than most mm. New Zealanders. Um, he didn't sound like a New Zealander either. He sounded quite English. And that is some, probably something to do with his father who ran Bellamy's uh, parliament. So he was in that sort of upper ranges of mm. people from the time he was a kid. He borrowed books from the parliamentary library so that he grew up in that sort of formal state. He went to Victoria University and I think he'd had a year's deputy at Wellington Public Library before he came to Dunedin. Well, he didn't get the first appointment. Alastair Macintosh was actually appointed city librarian in Dunedin, but the head of the, the, the um, one of the departments in the, the, the Parliament, Prime Minister's Department in Parliament wanted Macintosh to stay in Parliament as a public servant, not as a librarian and persuaded him to do that and actually got the job. And that's how he came to be so young when he mm. down here. But he hesitated it, but, but he came. Well, that was quite a long time before I had anything to do with the place. But I, because I'd had that sort of first thing with him, I found him just the most amusing person when I didn't like what the, the gardening looked like. There were hundreds of books on gardening, which Miss O'Keefe had, had all bound in green. Because that's what you did with gardening. Because I didn't know anything about gardening, and when somebody asked what about gardening, and there were all 635.9, and there were about 500 of them. Well, it was lost. So I was standing, looking at it, and once again he said to me, you don't like the little things. And I said, you always seem to come when I'm looking stupid. And he said, no, no, you don't look particularly stupid. <laughs> Anyway, I said, I don't like those there looking like that, and they ought to be classified, because Mr Dewey has good classifications. He said, all right, let's fix it. And he threw them all on the floor. <laughs> all lot. All the books on the floor. How will we start, he said. And I said, I think we start with the general gardening, Mr Dunningham, and that's the only thing I understand. So we did that, put them in alphabetical <laughs> order, and we eventually had everything sorted by... Because he was mad about gardening. I said, a lot of books on bulbs, but that's what you're buying. And he, he laughed, he was at me, he said, you mustn't admit that. And he was really... He, he knew what his interests were, because suddenly a whole lot of books came into the library. No. <laughs> <laughs> He always said, you should have a staff with lots of interests that they will know what to buy mm. for us. That was what he believed. Mm. It's quite right too. Anyway, I can still remember when we finally put all these books back after about two hours and we were both filthy, absolutely <laughs> filthy. He looked at me and said, and you're going to have to tell the catalogue up. <gasps> and walked away. He was gone. <laughs> and you just feel that would be difficult. However, she turned out not to be particularly difficult. She made a bargain that if I took all the cards out of the catalogue, she would do the rest. And I wouldn't do more than ten books a week. Because I read somewhere that he liked the catalogues to be on the information desks, and part of the reason was because it, to make sure the catalogue actually worked. That's right. Yeah. He'd done an awful lot of work, I think, on the catalogues, because... In McEwan's time, you'll see, I don't know whether any of them have survived, but books were on eight by five cards, and there might be a whole lot of books on a particular mm. card. And he was the one that introduced the individual five by three catalog yes. cards. I'm pretty sure he did. I don't, think they, yeah. I don't think they existed in McEwan's time. That was the evidence. And things like biographies, were, they had a peculiar sort of... And Miss, Miss Randall did the reorganisation of them herself 
Um, but she did the, catalog, the cataloging of the gardening section with me too. So that it, it worked all quite well. He knew jolly well it would work quite well. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't. You did do what he wanted. I don't think anybody would have willingly said no, won't to him. No. I think a lot of people were awestruck by him. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Yes. Because it never, I never felt I was struck by him because I, I think I enjoyed the sort of, almost like antics. <laughs> I enjoyed that. I thought that was great fun. And I'd been used to, I suppose I'd been used to the fact that my mother treated us as adults from the very beginning because my father died when I was six. Mm. I think we grew up very quickly. So I probably was less likely to be worried by someone um, than, they, than anybody else because a lot of the others had probably a more sheltered existence than I had. And we'd travelled to New Zealand and we'd had to do adjustments mm. all our lives, really. Because I wouldn't go to school when I came to New Zealand because I'd have been at five primary schools and I would not go to another one. <laughs> the public library was a sort of... It was a perfect place as far as I was concerned. Mm. So he was obviously passionate about educating staff as well and supporting staff. Yes, that's right. There was every encouragement. To, you know, I, I, I quit university when I first got the job, but when I was partway through the training course, I got bored out of my mind by distance education. I never wanted it and I never wanted mm. it again. I hated it. Never seeing your tutors, passing these, getting these grey lists of questions and stuff. And we were lucky there were five of us doing it at mm. the same time. So it wasn't boring here. But at the part when we were starting the cataloguing, my friend Wynne Benton, who by that time was in charge of the literature room, said, why don't we do English 1 next to you, you and I? And I said, yes, not meaning a word of it. <laughs> and of course, I found myself doing English 1. And I can still remember being absolutely shocked. I'd finished and I'd got it and I'd finished the cataloguing at the end of that year, the same year I was doing the, the university plus the cataloguing plus the job. And the, my tutor was a cataloguer from Auckland Public, no Auckland University Library, Enid Evans. And she came down to see us all, which was very nice, and we went out to lunch. And then she said, and have you enjoyed this year? So I said, well, I've enjoyed this year because I did English one at the university and I enjoyed that a lot. And she said, you took that at the same time as you did the cataloging? And I said, yes, I did. And she said, if I'd known that, I wouldn't have passed. <laughs> and I was so shocked yeah. at anybody saying that sort of thing mm. that I just thought, I can't stand you. And I walked away from her. <laughs> it's not shocking. Mm. It's shocking. Yeah, I thought it was utterly shocking. Yeah. I didn't ever tell Mr. Dunningham because I just thought he'd be shocked and he'd he say would have so. known. <laughs> he quite possibly knew because my guess is she probably went straight back and told him. Mm. But he let you do the, the you know, the, you didn't get time off in those days. I made up the time to my standard. Oh. In fact, I discovered after a while that I was making up my time to 40 hours a week and the trade union had already had about 37 and a half. <laughs> but I was busy, you see, I was busy, I was too busy. And then I got very interested in the trade union and eventually it was, I think I was vice president of the Geneva Municipal Clinical and other Industrial Union of Workers other than railway inspectors. <laughs> 
I did. They wouldn't let me join the union because I became the city librarian and that was on the oh. other side of the fence. <laughs> Life is full of fun, as you can tell. I just, I think, I, I, I found it just great fun. But I must say that when I went to Glasgow and went there for a year, I think I laughed more there than I laughed there. <laughs> that was great fun too, so I was very lucky there as well. <laughs> so he was obviously interested in making sure people had access to yes. books as well. So the hospital well, that service... that was the reason for all this changing the th- arrangement of Dewey and putting these all together because it gave people better access. Mm. They came in and they knew that all the books on knitting and sewing and bringing up children were down there in the home mm. section, not lost in the middle of other things. That was what he was doing all the time. And we had all those display cases, and that was to bring books out. Mm. A book that sat in the shelves for more than two days was not functioning. <laughs> I think, you see, some people couldn't stand that. They really? found that very disturbing. Mm. And they couldn't get the sort of orderliness that they wanted. It was perfectly orderly, mm. but you had to be imaginative about it too. Mm. And I can remember how we get an argument with them once when Peter Buck's Vikings of the Sunrise came out and I wanted four copies for them. <laughs> you can't have four copies, it's far too many. Um, so he let me have two. And just afterwards we did a survey of what was being used most and I put Vikings of the Sunrise on the display case. Every time it came in, it went out. <laughs> and of course, at the end of the time, it was the most popular non-fiction book <laughs> in the library. <laughs> and he just looked at me and said, you did that deliberately. And I said, of course I did. <laughs> but you could do that mm. with the sort of things that he did. Mm. There were all sorts of interesting things. He was great on statistics. And I must say that I did use them again at Auckland Public, where they were understaffed very badly. And the staff grizzled at me about, you know, having to fill in these forms. And I said, there'll be results. Just you what? <laughs> and I could remember the New Zealand room was the worst. They were overworked just so busy and I went down to see Pat one day and said I think you should come into your office and sit down for a minute Pat and she said what's happened and I said you can have two more staff <laughs> and she said I've fainted you've seen me fainting on the floor haven't you <laughs> but it proved that what you did in the way of statistics mm. if you presented it it got results mm. and that was what he was like he was always analysing mm. what we were doing take a brief musical interlude there for a a breather Um, let's have this one this is Harry Connick Jr and I could write a book If they asked me I could write a book About the way you walk and whisper and look I could write a preface on how we met So the world would never forget 
was Harry Connick Jr. Well, let's return to Mary Ronnie's interview now and hear some more about Archie Dunningham. Because I think, was it him who had the decided to put the Just Returned books on a display so people would... That's right, yes. Which I thought, ah, that still works today, doesn't it? You know, yes, it does. Those yes, it does. It hasn't changed at all. No. And people, and it means you're not shelving them. Mm. You mm. can just put them out. That's it. Yes, he had all sorts of ideas mm. on what had been. I think in Mr. I think in Mr. McEwen's day, that library was basically a reference library, mm. and the, I think I suspect the lending collecting was probably pretty fundamental and quite poor, mm. because it, it was, I think it was. I think it was where the sociology room eventually was, or it was, but it wasn't much, and he could see that this was a huge waste of money. Mm. All these books virtually unused in the reference department. You know, and the funny part was we called that room the ref for years <laughs> after it was not a reference department. But he was right that if you looked sometimes at them, he were two copies of the book, one in lending, one in reference, and the reference one was used and the other one wasn't, or vice versa. And he just saw that this was a waste of money. Mm. You didn't need two copies of lots of these books. One was ample, and one should have been referenced or not referenced. He made these, mm. you know, you were working, and you would expect him to do this sort of mm. stuff. You analysed what the purpose of these books were and what the use would likely to be. And I can remember after I left that department, but Margaret Aidy was doing it, and because she was terrific, um, and we really felt that we were getting we were getting a lot of books, a lot of periodicals, on something, something in engineering. I can't remember what it was. It turned out that most of the companies in Dunedin actually bought that periodical, so we dropped it. Mm. There was no point in it. Mm. We, we could buy something else mm. that nobody had, and that was what he was always looking at, 
and we were always looking at it too. I mean, it was part of the part of the you know keeping the, the police alive mm. was that you you saw what was working and what wasn't working. And the interesting people that came in, it was just astonishing the, the sort of people that came to the library. You, you had people that were running factories, right? I can remember somebody who was running one down at Ben Ben Hur. It was a, I think it was a branch of my skimmings. Yeah. Did, did all the toilet, the lavatory work down yeah. there, and the, the boss came in and said. Laboratories are so dull. Could you find me a different pattern for them? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that we did, but it was interesting. <laughs> the other thing that he, because he was a, a big supporter of the arts as well, wasn't he? Well, he and Peggy both were. Mm. Yes, they were. Um, always, he, he, as soon as he could manage it, and I can't remember precisely how he did this, we cleared the lecture hall, which had been full of books and managed to build shelves and put them somewhere else. So we had the lecture hall. And um, we had Colin McCann's first exhibition. Isn't that amazing? Yes. The, the, the art gallery thought he wasn't good enough. Mm. That's and incredible. And Mr Dunningham and Peggy just looked up and thought we're mad and how did you go, oh, we're out here. <laughs> and we had it here. I mean, it was just, you know, all sorts of people like that. Mm. Lee Johnson. It wasn't just an Eden artist, it wasn't local at all. They were from all over the place. And Peggy was interested in furnishings, and there was a, she'd formed a, a little sort of group that was on doing not too expensive but good furniture. And we had occasional displays in the, in the lecture hall, that sort of thing. And they both did this. And that's, of course, why Rodney Kennedy presented the McCann in honour of Peggy and Jack yes. and Archie Sun Dunningham because he realised that both of them mm. had had this great interest in the art and it, it was a marvellous place for us because we were going through that lecture hall to get books yes. for people all day so you saw these pictures repeatedly and you might not understand them the first time you saw them mm. but once you'd gone through half a dozen times a day you began to get attached to them it was a very interesting experience. It was a great idea for all of us. Yes, and because you had a lending library, of but we did have the well. lending base, and of mm. course some of the stories about that were funny because I ran it for ages. It oh. was run at the commercial desk, and um, he was always UNESCO was putting out whole series of art prints, a hundred at a time, and he had we had got the. I think the sort of 19th century, we got the 18th century. Then he discovered that he had a Japanese collection. He was wanting to have that. But only 99, not 100, <laughs> arrived. <laughs> Where was the 100? One day he was sitting in Mr. Alley's office at the National Library. And there was the 100. <laughs> and he just took it off the walls and said, that's ours. <laughs> brought it down. <laughs> I felt it ought to have had a special case. Oh. <laughs> I had no compulsion about it at all. Mr Ali didn't particularly like her mummy, so I'm not surprised. But that's it, you see. But he wasn't going to give in to that. We bought the thing. <laughs> he didn't tell everybody these things. But, you know, I happened to be in the right place to hear them. I just... Was jolly lucky. I was in the right place to hear. So, 
um, with Peggy. So she worked with the library as well. Who was that? Peggy, his wife. So did they work quite well? She came into the library all the time and she was working for the adult education Mm. at the university. So she used books here. She was up in the art and literature collection because it was art. She was going around Central Otago basically talking art. But she also took an interest in what went on, and of course she loved being mixed up with the exhibitions mm. in the gallery, in the lecture hall. So she was quite busy about that. But we all knew her. Mm. I mean, you Dinah too. She was just a schoolgirl at the time. Um, I think we all felt that a bit sad about Dinah that she, you know, she felt that life must be a bit difficult for her. But I'm not sure that we were right. <laughs> we may have been wrong. Who was Dinah? And her daughter. Mm. And she had a tragic death. Mm. It was really terrible for her. It was terrible for both of them. I remember Archie talking about that terrible Dinah. She was, I think she had finished her degree. She was in Wellington in a flat which I think belonged to the family and she had inherited it. And she went for a walk this Saturday. They found her car at Macra and they couldn't find her anywhere. Mm-hmm. And months went past, and then during, the, I think, the May holidays or somewhere around then, a couple of boys in the neighbourhood found a body in a cave. So they went back to their father and told them this, and he said, nonsense, it's an animal, you're just imagining it. And he did nothing about it. And I think it was Labour weekend before the, the boys finally said to him, look, Dad, you've got to come. Mm-hmm. She's got clothes on and, a, and, and her bag's there. So the father finally was persuaded and went and it was Dinah. And she had been walking along the cliff path and they think that she probably jumped across the gap, fell, and was enough that the coroner decided that she had been, she had been alive when she landed and crawled into the cave for shelter. And I suppose she'd expect somebody to come. Mm. Now, why they didn't do a proper search when they found her, her car at Macra has mm-hmm. always been something that worried me because they found a pair of shoes out at Island Bay and said to her flatmate, could they be, these be Dinah's shoes? And she said, well, they could have been. But why was the car at Macra if she was at mm. Island Bay? So there was this story of her being... Oh, there all sorts of stories and they were in Indonesia of course with Peggy and Archie and um, they had left Indonesia and Archie was on his way to Paris to report UNESCO Peggy was looking at temples in Java I think and they found the body Alistair McIntosh and his wife did all the work here because they were so friendly mm. with Archie and had kept this friendship up. They looked after the funeral and all the rest of it. But Archie being meticulous, he was in New York and he had left his, at the hotel desk, he had left where he was going for the day. So they were able to get him right away and he flew straight back. And they, they, you know, the coroner got onto the job right away and it was quite clear that this is what had happened. There had all been an accident. But of course it was nightmare. Well, he didn't go back to Indonesia. He went to Delhi mm. for UNESCO to close up the UNESCO efforts. And that's when my friend Jackie, whom I got to very well, met him. And I can remember him saying, my memory of him and his wife 
was the saddest people I'd ever oh. seen. And that was that year. Yeah. Oh. So Jackie could see it. Mm. Of course, it doesn't surprise me he was that sort of person. But it's, it's, it, was, it was a very serious effect on him. Mm. And they, he retired after that. And I saw quite a lot of him because they inherited this flat that Dinah had lived in. So they came and they lived in Wainstown during the winter and spent the summers up in the north and then eventually they made they built the house in Point Wells and went and settled there. But um, it was a, it was a, a very sad finish mm. to the whole thing and because Peggy died of a heart attack. She was sitting reading a book and that was it. Well, he would have enjoyed the UNESCO connection that we have now, being mm. the city of literature. Yes, he would, he would have loved that. He would have been right in the heart of that. <laughs> yeah. That would have been just great yes. for him. It was exactly the thing that would have been. Mm. Yes. yes, he would have loved it. And he got on very well with Mr. Reed. I've always found them such an interesting combination. They got terribly, they, 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 just, they all fitted. Mm. And the pair of them would talk about, well they talked about a lot of the illustrations in his books and things like that but they also talked about the future of the collection mm. and what they wanted was it to be totally visible to everybody and of course it isn't which I think is one of the really sad mm. things, but that was what Mr. Reed wanted in fact he was he really wanted people to be handling it more than they did, that's why he let um Christopher Hamill mm. do it when he was 12. Um, <laughs> get, you know, but he also, there was somebody in the English department who was editing one of the Dickens novels, and particularly, and of course we had this particular one with the original edition and all the bits and parts. Oh, yes. And he came in to see it and he was thrilled to bits because otherwise he was going to have to go to London to get it. And H said to him, take it home. <laughs> He was horrified at the idea. <laughs> he didn't take it home. He said, oh, I'd be too frightened to. I'm afraid I'd lose it. But that was just natural to Mr. Reed. Take it home. Mm. Let's take it home. Amazing. <laughs> so what do you think were, were Dunningham's greatest achievements? I think the greatest achievement he made was actually changing the place from being a solidly reference library into a total library for everybody, so that everybody, no matter what their interests, would have the best books. That was the principle. That didn't matter what you were interested in, the thing that you ought to be given is the best book on the subject. Not just any old book, but the best ones. And he did it. He really did do it, and he tried to make them accessible. So the popular room was travel and sport. No connection with Mr. Dewey. Um, because one was a 700 and one was 900. Mm. But, and the fiction, and all this home stuff, and um, biographies, of course, were very accessible because they were all 920 when you went in alphabetical mm. order. But it that was the principle that the best books would be available for everybody, absolutely everybody. Mm. And some of it would have to be referenced, but he really preferred that everything could be. So some of the stuff that had been reference he just left with the reference labels but they were this may be borrowed mm. was put inside them so you put a special 
Officer W. You, you issued them through a book at the at the desk, at the information desk. But we didn't ever actually. The, but there were some that were kept, you know, encyclopedias mm. and so on, were were reference only because you had to have something like that. But that to me was what he did was get this feeling that this public library belongs to the whole the whole place, it belongs to everybody. And whatever their interests, they ought to be able to find the best thing. And you didn't leave anybody wandering around the building looking for something. You went and asked them what they needed. <laughs> that was another thing. He couldn't bear to see somebody looking lost. He'd say to you, I think that man looks a bit lost. <laughs> and if you know if you were doing something else, you went and you attended to that man, mm. you might have been a bit lost. But that was it. It was a public service that was the thing. And that's how the ref. The, Mobile libraries, you know, mm. the first mobile library, that was to get it out yes. into places where it wasn't easy for other people to get to. Um, and the hospital service, of course, he was passionate mm. about that. Um, and of course, it was a different sort of hospital existence in those days. But that was what I, I think was mm. his great achievement, is this understanding of the quality of books and how important they were for people, but not just books, because there were pictures mm. and records. He also started the music collection, and we had that little room. What it had been? Can't remember what it had been, but it became the listening room. Uh, and the, what had been Mr. McEwen's office became the record library, and Miss Bryant had inhabited that as uh, all the time that she was acting librarian when she was at the, uh, in the army. But she kept it on because he very sensibly didn't get her to retire when he came back. He made her associate librarian and he kept Miss Fascia's deputy ah. so that there was a minimum change. Because I thought and he'd be interested in all these new technologies because he was trying to find ways to free up staff. And I think with maybe with some of these technologies. Loved, yes. He yeah, he, he died before um, computers became general. Mm. But, you know, he was always looking up. He changed the issue system to, to get away from Brown and all those mm. other things. And Peter, my husband, eventually invented that new system. And he's somewhere in his, there's a, a record somewhere of him, and he said, he just gave that to Peter and he did it. <laughs> and I think Alison said to me, who was Peter? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, I know who Peter was. <laughs> and of course, when we eventually married, he was so pleased with us. <laughs> it was so funny. I was at Open Public, but well, no, I wasn't. I was at the National Library. But I went to Open Public. But we went up on top a lot of weekends with Archie. And he'd, he and Peter just talked incessantly all the time. <laughs> they just were off, off the Peter. It was very like him. They, they suited each other very well. Mm. I thought it was interesting. I um, found you'd written something for Library Life after Dunningham died and, and you said some of the brightness went out of the sun when he went away and because it was almost as if you were prepared for him to go because he sort of would come backwards and forwards Yes, actually and he was always a sort of presence mm. even when he was away and when he finally decided to leave yeah, it was, it was really quite it was quite startling mm. I think Dorothy White put it that the tide went out which was an interesting, yes. an interesting thing too. And in a sense, it was true. Miss Fash was a very efficient librarian, but she wasn't inventive the way he had been inventive. But of course, mm. it maybe wasn't so necessary. Mm. 
he was doing a fundamental job at a, at a time, right in the middle of the Depression, mm. when he came here. So he saw things at a time when life was not easy. Mm. But his philosophies seem to carry forward mm. even into the 21st century. Yes. From what you've been saying. I think they mm. do, yes. I just... I, you, you can't have regrets about it because it just seemed to be so good. Elizabeth Brooke, who was in the Children's Library for a long time and came over to the main library for a while, she's been in England for a very long time now and she's doing work with children on international educational systems. But she said that English libraries were a tremendous shock to her after Dunedin Public. And she travelled a lot and she reckoned that at that time Dunedin Public Library was the best public library she saw anywhere. Just no one else Mm. had this sort of spirit of being out there for people. it was lovely to be able to capture those memories from Mary Ronnie there. Really appreciate her talking to us. And that is preserved in the Scattered Seeds archives. You can listen to that interview at any time. I I think we should have another song now. This one is Mr Sandman by the Cordettes. Mr Sandman I 
don't know if you've ever visited the Dunedin Gasworks Museum, but it's well worth a visit if you do get a chance down in South Dunedin. Amazingly, one of the first things that catches your eye when you go in there is in the museum's engine house. They have a La Pavoni Lilliput 55. It's a 1955 coffee machine. It's thought to be perhaps Dunedin's earliest espresso machine. Rescued from a landfill and lovingly restored several years ago. So if you happen to visit on one of the days when they're practicing their vintage barista skills, you can enjoy a free sample of what Dunedin's first lattes might have tasted like. That's well worth a visit. Well, I think we have run out of time, as we often do. So I will just leave you with this. Uh, Don't forget, if you've got any stories to tell me, do get in touch. Library at dcc.govt.nz or you can call 03474-3690. Um, if it's about your favourite cafe, is it still there? Tell us what was great about your cafe. What's it called now? If you have memories of your wedding that you'd be happy to share with our online archive, that would be great to hear from you. Or if you have memories of the time Dunedin suffered during the polio epidemic, we're also recording those stories. So uh, you know, do get in touch if you've got an interesting story to tell me, if you've got photos to share. Get in touch with us and we'll take it from there. And don't forget to take a look at the Recollections Archive. It's got all these wonderful stories of Dunedin on it. It's dunedin.recollect.co.nz. Have a look at that uh, and you'll find lots of stories about good old Dunedin on there. Don't forget to tune in next week at 11 o'clock on Monday morning or you can hear the repeat show at 10pm on Tuesday evening. You'll find us on 105.4 FM or 1575am and don't forget you can also tune in to the podcast on oar.org.nz to catch up at a time that suits you. Next week, we should have Jill back in the studio with us, so um, we'll have lots of fun then, and hopefully she'll be able to tell us a bit about her top-secret project that she's been working on. But for now, I shall say goodbye. I hope you have a great week, and I'll see you then.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.